where we discover and demystify the latest and upcoming innovations in science and technology that will shape our future and transform the world as we know. Listen to world-renowned experts talk about fascinating subjects and young icons share their radically innovative ideas and projects. This podcast is brought to you by Be Singular, an edutech academy that imparts critical future skills through an immersive and interdisciplinary set of courses ranging from artificial intelligence and virtual reality to iOS app development and game design. Earth, our home, and the only home known to humans. It is unlike any other planet we know. Actually, that's not true. After decades of scientific and astronomical research, multiple space exploration missions and trips to outer space, we've gone from imagining to preparing for human life on planets other than the Earth. Thanks to technology, humans are able to create favorable conditions for survival even where there are very few. According to NASA, the first Mars astronauts are walking the Earth today. Entrepreneur Elon Musk's SpaceX developments in human spaceflights continue to grow. Just last year, Musk publicly stated that the SpaceX could be landing humans on Mars by 2026. On today's episode, Planet Mars on Earth, we'll be learning about the studies and experiments in play to bring humans a step closer to outer space. We have with us on today's episode, space systems researcher and biologist, Angelo Vemulin. In 2013, Angelo was a crew commander of the NASA-funded High Seas Mars Simulation in Hawaii and is currently researching on interstellar travel at Delft University of Technology. Let us take a deeper dive into the subject with him and understand what it means for humans to live in outer space. Hi, Angelo. Thank you for joining Hi. us on our podcast, The Future Slang. There have been several mass exploration missions with scientists trying to research if there is or ever was life on Mars. Mars has become the focus of outer space exploration missions lately. You were the crew commander for the NASA-funded Mars simulation program, which was basically a long-term isolation of crew members in conditions similar to that of Mars. What were the objectives of the program? The objectives of the High Seas uh, program um, were essentially to study the effects of long-term isolation on crew dynamics and on individual psychology. As we all know, going to Mars is a, is a long trip. It can take up to two and a half, three years to go to Mars, stay on the surface of Mars and then leave again. Another aspect of high seas is really trying to figure out what is the ideal crew composition for such a long duration challenge. And then the third goal of our study, because we were, I was part of the first high seas mission. I was the crew commander of the first high seas mission. And we had a very extensive food study investigating 
the type of food and the type of meals that future astronauts while living on Mars could eat. And the core challenge here is even though space food is quite varied and it actually looks relatively similar to what we eat on Earth, uh, astronauts do develop menu fatigue over time. We are assuming that for such a long mission, it might even become uh, a serious problem. For example, it happens in the military where soldiers are having these ready meals day after day and they get a little sick and tired of eating the same food. We were tasked with investigating potential of cooking our own meals based on shelf-stable ingredients. You were essentially locked in a finite closed space with six other researchers. What were your key takeaways from that experience? Personally, I learned most about leadership. I think that was really the, the key takeaway for me on a personal level. Just living together in a small space and nobody talking to each other, that's just not very healthy on a mental level. You need to communicate and exchange experiences and discuss struggles and successes. But also there is empirical proof that teams that are more cohesive are actually more productive. We developed a kind of rhythm where we had morning meetings and in the evening I would check in with everybody to make a command report. So there were a number of rules that we embraced. And, and one of them was also that I asked people not to hide in their room the entire day, but just, you know, at least spend some time together with the others to, to work together. Absolutely, especially when it's a group of people in isolation from the rest of the world, why further isolate yourself? Um, I'm intrigued to know what actually ended up being your favorite meal from the mission. Uh, that's a difficult question because when you are living in these situations, you're really craving for comfort food. So things like bread and soup and mashed potatoes. And for me, I don't, I didn't have one particular meal that stood out. I was just happy that we had a bread machine so we could make our own bread. That's truly interesting. Based on the exploration missions to Mars and other planets, do the conditions at present in upper space allow a self-sustained life? I think at present, with the, the technology that we have and the stages we're at in terms of space exploration, we cannot build a fully self-sustained uh, habitat in outer space. Theoretically, yes, we have the knowledge. And there is a very advanced uh, program on bioregenerative life support, but it's not a space application yet. It's the same thing with Eden ISS, which is a very successful plant growth experiment that happened in Antarctica a couple of years ago. So that was a very successful example of growing fresh food in a very difficult environment, but it hasn't been tested in space. In order to sustain life in outer space for an extended period of time, we need to develop self-sustaining systems on the destination planet itself. I mean, how long can we rely on resources from Earth? In one of your TED Talks, you said that you are quite certain that humans will establish human life in outer space at some point in the future. What makes you so confident? I think it's simply, if you extrapolate human history, that's what's going to happen. I mean, we've been spreading all over the globe. We've been slowly conquering. We've been, we've been conquering the atmosphere, outer space. I don't see a reason why it would not happen, you know? And it's interesting if you compare it to the history of aviation. I mean, we, we had our first airplanes in 1903, the Wright brothers, mm -hmm. and so much has happened since, and it's only a hundred years. The upper atmosphere is a very hostile environment, but gradually, culturally, and psychologically, during the first decades of aviation, we kind of emotionally and psychologically conquered those layers uh, around the earth. The, the conditions there, the, the lack of oxygen, the, the problems yeah. with pressure and everything, temperature. 
But still, we are there inside the airplane, separated from the outside world by a very thin layer because those airplanes need to be as light as possible. And you're totally comfortably watching movies, reading books, eating, sleeping, you know, which is quite amazing. And so it's you can see that in the beginning, it's all very tough and difficult. Uh, but as the technologies evolve, things become more comfortable. And we develop this kind of emotional and psychological comfort. And this is exactly what's happening in space right now. And I think a really good example is actually the Inspiration4 mission that was just launched uh, recently yeah. by SpaceX, which was the first mission uh, which was crewed only by civilians, which is quite amazing. And I look at outer space and all the artifacts as not something separate from the surface of Earth, but as a gradient that extends from Earth all the way into space. It's only logical that we will keep on moving deeper and deeper into space. On one of our previous episodes titled, Could You Live on Mars? Our guest planetary geologist, Emily Laktawala, made a case against inhabitation of Mars. According to her, we risk contaminating the planet even before we're able to truly explore it. Where do you stand on space inhabitation? Well, there's actually a few ideologies that are being used to sell the story of going to Mars. And it, it, it's quite interesting to look at it a bit more objectively, you know, what's out there, what kind of ideas are out there. Yeah. Mars is pristine, yeah. might contain traces of ancient life, there might still be life, and we don't want to contaminate it. It's a unique world that could give us unique answers to where we come from. If you So if you investigate this idea of going to Mars within the scientific community and definitely within the astrobiology community, most people will be like, no, there's absolutely no reason to set foot on Mars. Now, there is also another story that you can hear a lot, which is Mars as a backup planet. A catastrophe could happen that wipes out most of humanity, just like what happened with the dinosaurs. So we need to become a multi-planetary species. And Elon Musk has been talking about this quite extensively. And it's not such a, it's not such a bad idea. I mean, it, it does make sense that we need to spread out if we want to survive for long term. I, I don't fully disagree with that. But that's another, another perspective. Now, there is also reasons to go to Mars that are a bit more related to ideas from science fiction to create this techno-utopia right, where technologies and humans are fused and we create this completely new way of living, this kind of really utopian vision where technology is, is the, the primary driver of human civilization. So uh, transhumanists are really interested in, in, in this, people that are interested in singularity are interested in this. So we are already living in a techno technology-driven world. It's not like we're heading towards a technology-driven world. It's already there. Techno-utopia is more the belief that technology has to be at the base of everything and is the solution for everything. And then the, the, last, uh, the last kind of perspective on, on colonizing Mars is really neoliberal. Mars is an incredible opportunity, just like anything else in space, to make lots of money. Asteroid mining, lunar mining, going to Mars to, uh, to, to get resources. These four visions for me, it really helps to understand all those different visions, and especially when people start discussing, you're really taking a position in one of those ideologies. And there is something to be said for every ideology, and there's also some issues with every ideology. You co-founded Seeds. You know, this collective consists of artists and designers, researchers, scientists and engineers, and it's a diverse group of people from all across the globe. 
Um, in fact, you too, you have a couple interests. You're into gaming, you're a space systems researcher, you're a biologist, you're an artist. Um, how do you juggle these interests and what advice do you have for kids who have, who tend to have so many interests um, and find it difficult to concentrate on one thing or find one uh, field of interest? People have always had multiple interests. I think most, it's human nature to have multiple interests. I still have to meet the person that is saying, I'm only interested in one single thing in the world, nothing else. I mean, they must be around, but they're probably very rare. Now, our education system is basically forcing you to make a choice. And sometimes there's always, there's also some parental pressure. Uh, you've got to be a doctor, you've got to be an engineer. That is not usually unlocking the full potential of people. I think it's crucial that you start addressing those multiple interests and you start studying those multiple things. In my case, I studied photography. I went really deep into photography for several years and that enabled me to become a multimedia artist, basically. I'm, I'm working with all kinds of media, installation, art, video. Cross-fertilizing these different interests by combining these different interests, that's what generates innovation and new ideas and it's also what makes you unique. And then it's going to actually going to be able to, you're going to be able to find your spot in the world because you have that unique combination of interests that you manage to bring together. I do know that you quite enjoy playing video games. Do you wish that you could make a Mars themed uh, or a space themed video game? And if yes, what would it be like? Yeah, well, I love space opera and, and, and there are game, fantastic games like Mass Effect, for example, which is an incredible series of games. But I wouldn't mind creating a game where it's more about creation and collaboration instead of killing and competition. So that would be my take on, on, on a Martian space-based uh, space game. Well, uh, we at B Singular provide courses in game design too. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that some of our students would love to produce a space-themed game, exactly like the one of your dreams. Who knows? That would be interesting. I'll be the first to play it. Thank you for joining us on our episode and sharing some fascinating insights on space colonization and human inhabitation in outer space. Thanks for having me. You have reached the end of the episode. Thank you for tuning in today and don't forget to listen to our next episode. You can listen to the podcast on Anchor, Spotify and Apple Music. You can also go to the Future Slang website or the Be Singular Digital website to check out more episodes or read our blogs on all things future. This is the Future Slang, signing off.